Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Gino Cortopassi. He's a professor, uh, part of Molecular Biosciences and School of Veterinary Medicine at UC Davis. Uh, we're going to talk about mitochondrial disease and therapy. And uh, also his associate is here. I don't... Uh, and the details, so I'll let his associate do their own intro. But uh, welcome, Gino. And uh, Gino's associate, uh, just please, for the podcast, let listeners know a bit about your name and background. Uh, hi, I'm Sandy Pandata. I uh, worked for Gino as a postdoc for six years and then as an associate, uh, an assistant project scientist for another uh, three years. So I have been working on multiple different projects which involved mitochondrial therapy. And uh, I was the lead in the uh, project on the quaternary ammonium compounds. Okay. And uh, so Gino and uh, Sandy, what, what would you like to discuss today in your research? Uh, mitochondrial work or the quaternary ammonium compounds? So what's, what would you like the focus of today's talk to be about? Uh, happy to talk about the quaternary ammonium compounds since, uh, yeah. If you would tell me about uh, your work surrounding them. Sure. Yeah. This came from several... So we started screening many uh, everyday household items, uh, drugs, uh, cleaners, disinfectants, uh, about uh, 2,000 of them by this technique called high-throughput screening. Uh, high-throughput screening is where you put uh, a lot of, uh, you, you can put many different molecules in different wells of a 96 or 384 well plate, and then assay their effect. Uh, on the cell's uh, phenotype or function. And so we took 2,000 of these molecules that are involved in everyday life, either drugs or cleaners, disinfectants, sprays, whatever, and uh, for the first time looked at their effect on mitochondrial function and uh, by several different assays. Uh, so I don't know how scientific your audience is, but there are assays that are measuring uh, different aspects of the function or power of the mitochondria. The mitochondria are the 
powerhouses of the cell. They are um, the little factories inside of the cell that that produce all of the body's energy. And um, so we were looking at uh, molecules, small molecules, drugs, uh, compounds that would affect the mitochondrial function. And the kind of, and by several different assays, uh, looking at several different functions of the mitochondria. And the thing that was surprising about 2015, I started noticing that these, the, the compounds that were inhibiting the mitochondria had very similar names. They all had a, an onium at the end of them. And so I looked up their structures and looked up the different the, the names and the chemical structures. And uh, this, these molecules that have an onium at the end of them have a similar chemical structure. And that is they have uh, a quaternary ammonium. And what that means is they have an a, a ammonium, a nitrogen atom that is complex to four different things. And so then I thought, well, that's really interesting. Oh, and these were all inhibiting mitochondrial function by several different assays. Yeah, how could uh, you tell that they were inhibiting it? And what does inhibition mean? What did that look like? Sure. Yeah, these were assays. What, what the mitochondria do in your body, this is the reason that you breathe air in and out. And why it's essential for you to have oxygen is that the body is using that oxygen and burning uh, carbon-containing foodstuffs in, that are in your body. And then when you burn those carbon-containing foodstuffs, you oxidize them in the mitochondria and you convert that oxygen O2, uh, CO2, carbon dioxide. So as you're burning these different foods uh, that you eat, you know, whether it's protein, carbohydrate, or fat, you're producing uh, carbon dioxide and you're extracting the energy that was in that uh, carbon-containing molecule. And, and so uh, there's different ways to assay uh, that activity. One is uh, mitochondrial oxygen consumption, how fast they burn the oxygen to make the CO2. Uh, another one is um, looking at ATP synthesis. That's the assay that Sandipan developed. Um, and, and so he was able to find a very rapid assay where he could look at uh, the ability of the mitochondria to make ATP. ATP is a uh, the the energy currency of the body and the cell. So as the mitochondria make ATP, that provides energy to the whole cell, and that powers your muscles and your brain uh, in your body. Um, and there were other assays as well. Yes, uh, Richard. Well, how can you tell that um, you know mitochondria? So was this a mouse model? Was this uh, you know in people? And what was the phenotypic affect? Did you know, the mouse yeah. or the person, whatever it is, were they just tired or no, did you these just look were, at biomarkers? Uh, these were assays. These are all cell-based assays. So the advantage, and they were, in general, these were human uh, cells. And the advantage of a cell-based assay is you can put 
uh, 10,000 cells in the bottom of a dish and then do that 384 times, so almost 400 times, and get an output in a few hours on which of these molecules are inhibiting ATP synthesis or mitochondrial oxygen consumption. And so they were all cell-based uh, assays. And oh, okay. So you didn't use organoids, but you used uh, just cells in a dish and that worked. That's correct. Right. Because we're, we're looking at their ability to uh, inhibit uh, mitochondrial function. And mitochondria are the same in cells as they are in uh, tissues and as they are in whole organisms. The structure of mitochondria is similar. However, uh, to speak to whether this is relevant uh, to humans, Sandipan also assayed the ability, once we had identified these molecules that were inhibiting mitochondrial function in cells, then he tested them in uh, cells that came uh, directly from a person and found that those human cells directly from a person were even more sensitive than the cells in the dish. And then uh, most recently, he looked at the sensitivity of a mouse model uh, to these same uh, mitochondrial inhibitory compounds and found that they were damaging to the lungs of those mice. So they've been tested at three different levels of organization. First, uh, in cells, that's how we tracked down that this particular chemical category was inhibiting mitochondria. Then uh, we moved on to human cells that were directly from a human. And then uh, most recently, we tested these same molecules and found that they were toxic when breathed uh, by uh, a mouse model. Well, what, what cell types did you have in culture? You know, in exposure to the, the quats, I would guess it's, you know, through absorption through skin, but also inhalation as well, right? Yes. And yeah, that, it, it was, those were done in several different cell types. Sandipan, uh, perhaps you could remind yeah, me. Yeah, I can take the question. So... Initially, when we were screening them, they were screened like, you know, in a human cancer cell line. Um, but then once we identified them as a mitochondrial toxin, we put them in primary mouse hepatocytes. So we isolated the hepatocytes from the mouse and then like, you know, tested, the, tested these compounds on the, on the mouse hepatocytes. Then we tested them on the primary cardiac fibroblasts. Then we tested them in primary uh, kidney epithelial cells, and also primary human skeletal muscle cells, skeletal muscle progenitor cells. So we have tested like, you know, four different type cells. And then, of course, as Gino mentioned, we have tested them also in mouse in vivo in the lungs, where we gave them by oropharyngeal aspiration, which is similar to what human, the model to a human inhalation. So again, you know, for the mouse situation, what did you notice about the mice? How long after they were exposed did their behavior change and what happened to them? Or did you have to rely on biomarkers? No, we, we what the, the study, it was a preliminary study. So what we did is we exposed the mice uh, to these different, like there were two different quaternary ammonium compounds that we chose to expose because of their usage. So the two 
two quaternary ammonium compounds that we chose are benzalkonium chloride, which is a disinfectant very widely used during the pandemic setting for uh, cleaning stuff. And we also chose um, dimethyl didecal ammonium chloride, which is also used as a cleaning and as well as pesticidal uh, effect. So we gave the mice a single dose of 10 milligrams per kilograms, 5 milligrams per kilograms, 2.5 milligrams per kilograms, and 1.25 milligrams per kilograms. And what we observed is that at 10 milligrams per kilograms, all the mice died. And then at uh, 2.5 milligrams, like, you know, about 50% mice died within 48 hours. Uh, So we determined that, like, you know, probably 1.25 for the DDSE and then uh, 2.5 milligrams per kilograms for BAC was a non-lethal dose. Uh, We, uh, like, you know, for acute injury. And um, so we, it was basically a dead or alive after three days kind of uh, pilot experiment. And like, you know, we saw that 2.5 milligrams, the mice survived after three years, after three days. But when we sacrificed them and looked the lung pathology under microscope, we saw that there was extensive lung damage for the mice, which survived the three days and was like not dead. So even the mice that did not die immediately had extensive damage of the lungs, which was evident from histopathological uh, characters uh, like condensation of alveoli and like, you know, infiltration of inflammatory cells in the lungs and so on and so forth. How does this compare to what an exposure would be for a a person or even a mouse that's, uh, you know, in a facility where there's cleaning going on? It, it so it, the, it would be very difficult to compare like you know an acute exposure because like when you're like say in a cleaning facility in a in a mouse facility where people clean with this uh, quaternary ammonium compounds or disinfect with the with this quaternary ammonium compounds it would be a whole body exposure uh, it, a lot of things depends on the particle size uh, or the droplet size and uh, what you know, what is going, what the concentration and everything. But if you want to know, like, you know, the, there is a study by Melin et al. Uh, from Dr. Terry Rubek's group, which we collaborate with. They first noticed when they used the quaternary ammonium compounds to clean their mouse room, their mouse, uh, their mice stopped breeding. And that's how they noticed the, uh, the effect of quaternary ammonium compounds. And then they found out that these quaternary ammonium compounds, the ambient, even the ambient, has um, reproductive toxicity and developmental toxicity. Do you know why the uh, mice didn't breed? Was it because there was no drive to reproduce or was there some other factor that stopped them? Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. 
Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Uh, there was damage to their uh, uterus and then they were like, you know, they, they were not uh, having the regular period. There was, there was like, you know, the, their Easter cycle was disturbed. I think that these are the two major reasons that like, you know, they did not breed. I, but I don't remember exactly the details of those papers, but that would be a, a nice paper to uh, like, you know, go back to. Do you think something like that would be useful or do you think that the work you've done uh, is enough to, to determine that, you know, uh, the fate of quads, should they be used or not? Or, you know, what to I, do? I, I think, uh, you know, as a policy decision, um, there's, there's a, there's a couple of different answers to that question. So for, to hit the EPA's sort of action item list, you have to have a certain concentration uh, in the blood. Uh, Santa Pen, do you remember what that concentration is, what that criteria is? I don't remember exactly. Uh, yeah, I want to say it's uh, uh, a couple parts per million or something like that. I think it's, it's 5 ppm or 0.5 ppm in the yeah, blood. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and that's just for anything that gets into the human body. So previously to our collaborative study with Dr. Terry Hrubeck, um, uh, so quats, quats have been in use for 60 years, since the 60s, because uh, people found that they, they were pretty good disinfectants. And so that was, uh, you know, uh, very important to everybody to have uh, clean, clean clothes and everything's nice and clean, right? It was, <laughs> it was a big part of sales pitches in the 60s. But they didn't really look, it's always been presumed that quacks don't make it into the human body. And um, our study, which was recently published with Dr. Terry Hrubeck, showed, and, and uh, Dr. Um, uh, Libin also showed that these molecules do get into the human body. They get into the blood. And it was a study of uh, a bunch of uh, students, Virginia Tech. And so, whereas previously for the last 60 years, the gospel has been that these molecules don't make it into, into the human body, it turns out that they do. And they do at a level that is higher than is actionable by the EPA. So that's new information. We still don't know if it's toxic. What do you mean actionable by the EPA? What, what do you mean it's higher than, than what is actionable? Well, uh, what I mean is that the EPA ext- pays attention to molecules that reach a certain concentration in the human body. If they don't go above that concentration, then they don't really pay attention to it. Okay. So as it turns out, it was always presumed that the levels of quarks didn't go above that level. Everybody said, well, if they're just externally used, they're in sprays um, and you know, they're in preservatives for uh, eye drops and yeah, they're in the scrubbing bubbles um, and they're in laundry detergent, but they never make it into your body, okay? But this study that we published shows that's not true. They actually do make it into your body. And a, a certain number of people just walking around on a college campus have quads 
detectable clocks in their blood. And a third of those people had clocks that uh, appear to be inhibiting mitochondrial function in their white blood cells, uh, as determined by uh, Sandipan and I. Yes. Have people done studies, let's say, of uh, hairdressers or you know, janitors or other people that are in the trades that would be exposed on a regular basis? And have the levels of exposure been quantified? Have the resultant blood concentrations of these molecules been quantified in certain groups? No, uh, we've been trying to get funding to carry out those studies. And indeed, Dr. Hrubeck has proposed exactly that study that you're talking about with the janitors. Uh, but that has not uh, received funding uh, yet. Uh, but there have been other studies in Scandinavian co- uh, countries of um, nurses and other healthcare uh, workers that are using uh, quarks as disinfectants. And uh, those epidemiological studies did find uh, increased uh, signal of health effects in those exposed workers. So, so the reason that we kind of like went into the lung study is that the Scandinavian countries, like, you know, when they use these, like, you know, they get asthma or like lung damage and bronchoconstriction and things like that. So that made us kind of interested in see in like investigating whether there is some mitochondrial angle to the lung damage because my lungs are rich in mitochondria. So like if, if something is causing mitochondrial injury, and especially by inhalation route um, or inhalation route, that should be affecting the integrity of the lungs. And uh, that's exactly what we find uh, in, in our like pilot study that it's causing lung damage. We still have to like, you know, get funding or we need to get funding to see whether the mitochondria, whether the mitochondria is involved in that uh, lung injury or what's the mechanism of the lung injury. And what you said is exactly right. Like, you know, people uh, who are in high risk of exposure, especially like in hospitals uh, where like, you know, there is high amount of disinfectant and even janitors are like, you know, housemaids are like, you know, because these, all of these compounds, the benzalkonium chloride and DDAC, these are found in like, you know, household compounds like Lysol, Clorox, kitchen cleaners, bathroom cleaners and everything like that. So there has been no longitudinal study, no chronic exposure study so far, because as Gino mentioned, it is thought to be dermally absorbed and and the exposure was thought to be dermal and the dermally it does not get absorbed. So people did not care about them, but we have been, we have been demonstrating that it's not true. And hopefully we will be getting research funding in the near future to do the study that exactly what you are mentioning for. But can you approximate with modeling what the the levels of concentration of exposure would be, you know, even for, uh, you know, again, for janitors or for hairdressers or even for regular folks that go into, let's say, a restaurant, you know, is there any use in, in again, quantifying like, oh, okay, in most indoor buildings, people will experience between like, uh, you know, one and 10 parts per million of these compounds, and it falls off after an hour of cleaning to, you know, this level. Is there any data on that? There isn't, uh, Richard, but but that's the study that we want to do. So first, we want to establish, so as Santa Pen told you, um, the, uh, the dose, uh, we've carried out a dose-dependent study up to now, and we know the dose uh, 
uh, the high dose that is very toxic, and then at a moderate and lower dose, it's less toxic. Um, but of, of course, that was just a pilot study, and what we'd really like to do is determine the, the whole dose range and what's the no observed effect level dose, and then uh, carry out you know, more extrapolations to humans so that we say, well, this is what's toxic in a mouse, and uh, through the aerial uh, the aerosol route to the lung. And so then we can extrapolate uh, based on some known formulas uh, and scale to humans. This is what these data would predict uh, would be toxic to human. Um, but um, yeah, of course, we're not there yet. And uh, we, yeah, we need to be able to get the uh, funding in order to do the bigger uh, dose response study in, in the mice to really make those extrapolations to what's relevant for human health. Well, based on what you're seeing, what would you expect or sus- suspect to see in people that are regularly exposed to these compounds? You know, again, housekeepers, uh, maybe even people in laundromats, uh, hairdressers, hospital workers, et cetera. What would be your guess? just knowing what you know right now? It's some complicated math that I'm, uh, uh, you know, so first, uh, we don't know the aerial uh, concentration of these quarks in those those environments, right? They haven't been calculated. Nobody's worried about them um, because uh, they've been presumed to be harmless. So, So we don't know what that number is. We don't know what the aerosol exposure in those rooms are. So then uh, once we knew that, then we could extrapolate. In the mouse model, you put a little droplet on the tongue, basically, and then that goes directly into the lungs. And um, so you can, you don't have to do a lot of calculations of room air density of the molecule uh, you can just say, okay, I know every every one of these molecules basically went into the lung in this OPA model, which is oropharyngeal. Um, but it's it gets more difficult um, because we don't have the data on the room air concentration for the janitors uh, or the laundromats, and and so we don't know how to extrapolate our data. Uh, from the mice, where we're making a simple presumption, all of these molecules went in the lung, to what about the more complicated situation where you're breathing and only some of these molecules are getting into the lung, if that makes sense. Okay. What about um, approaching it uh, from the other end, where let's say you take people that um, you know, have worked in a particular industry for at least five years, uh, you know, uh, nail technicians, I'm just making this up, you know, or again, janitors. Um, look at their blood, the concentrations of various stuff in their blood, and or again, just look at their medical history. Maybe that would be an easier clinical trial to do, where if you see there's patterns in their medical history, and then maybe kind of approach it again from the other end to bookend, you know, all this experimentation you have to do. Yeah, uh, I, I think the first one is more straightforward than the second. Um, the, your, your first idea of looking at the blood, uh, Richard, that makes sense. Uh, because as, as I said previously, people thought this never made it into the blood. So if you detect a signal, then it's a positive result. It's like, yep, it's there. And uh, that wasn't known before. So I, I think that would be a great study. Uh, I believe Terry has proposed that uh, with the janitor study. 
um, but it hasn't received funding yet. Um, and then the second one is more epidemiological, uh, where you're saying in this exposed group, um, you know, do we have more health events? And then uh, that can be very complicated and uh, it's hard. There's a pretty low signal to noise ratio there. And um, uh, I, I think if you can correlate that with the blood biomarker, then you have a much more powerful study or a chance at a much more powerful study uh, where you're correlating the clinical data, which are all often hard to get and hard to get through time. But if you're associating it with a, a hard blood biomarker like quark or quark metabolite determined by mass spec HPLC, um, then I, I think that would be a nice study design. Okay. And also, I want to add, also, I would like to add to Gino's comment is that, like, you know, the quads are so ubiquitous that, like, you know, it could be very confounding from which source the quads are coming from, like, you know, especially in an epidemiological setting, because people can use shampoos with quads, people can use fabric softener with quads. People can be cleaning their kitchen and like, you know, other than that, other than their workplace exposure. So depending on where the quads is coming from, it could be very hard to delineate in an epidemiological setting. But, you know, I guess we like, you know, what Gino said, it's, it's, it's going to be more straightforward to do like, you know, look, look at the blood biomarker and correlate with that way. Right now, like, you know, I am, I and Gino are working with oh, yeah, with some people in DTSC, the Department of Toxic Substances Control in California, and then as well as um, Green Science Policy Institute to write a review paper um, on the whatever the data is available on, on the quads. So it should be sent for submission like sometime next month and hopefully would be published pretty soon. So we are compiling all the evidence so far that is available preclinical as well as clinical in one place. Okay, very good. Well, yeah, where can people go to find out more about your work? What's the best place? So the right now, um, I think the for our research, the best way would be to like you know uh, go to PubMed and like our research uh, was also published or like you know taken up by a lot of news media outlets. Uh, we published a second paper where we looked into the quaternary ammonium uh, compounds. Uh, and the anti-estrogenic effect, the possible anti-estrogenic effects on the on the cells as well, that was published in Environmental Health Perspectives, and uh, we got a lot of press coverage for that. Uh, but like just for our research, it would be best to like you know go on PubMed and type our name and like you know uh, look from there, or even use they can use the Google as like you know quaternary ammonium cortopasi or quaternary ammonium sandipan data. Uh, other than that, like if people want to know more about the quaternary ammonium research in general, there is some, uh, I think there is a website for the DTSC, which deals with the biomonitoring, because like recently the DTSC has list uh, quaternary ammonium compounds for biomonitoring, and um, they have been collecting data on that. Yeah, so they have the scientific panel, guidance panel uh, meetings uh, on their on their website, uh, the DTSC biomonitoring website. It's called Biomonitoring California. So people can go over there and probably search for the uh, partner ammonium compounds and find 
the recent quaternary ammonium compound updates over there. Okay, very good. Well, again, we're out of time. Gino and Sandipan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Nice to talk. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.